for those of you who are just uh, just tuning in this week, um, you really are coming in to part B of a sermon which began last week. As a, as a church, we like to spend the the lion's share of our time in God's Word, in our, in, in, in our sermons and our services, making our way through entire books of God's Word. And as a church, we have been making our way through the book of Romans for a little over a year now. Um, and today, we are going to, tr- to read and to try and understand what I believe is the most difficult and offensive passage in the entire Bible. Which is saying something, isn't it? I mean, it's got some stiff competition. Um, last week... I'll give you all the warnings up front. Last week, we went for almost an hour, uh, and I fear we may break that barrier today. Um, So, sorry in advance. There's no way to do it shorter. I I think it would be irresponsible to try and rush uh, the content of this passage. Um, And what comes next, what we are about to encounter in God's Word, is what I would describe as a loving headbutt. It is one one of those passages... Uh, this is one of those passages that is going to help us clarify our answer to the question, who do I worship? God or myself? This is going to take our ego, our, um, our self-righteousness, and is going to grind it into the dirt. And I have not been this nervous in handling a part of God's word uh, in a long time. So why don't I pray? Father, we do thank you for your word which accomplishes your will. We thank you that your wisdom is higher than our wisdom, that your foolishness is higher than our wisdom. We pray that we would approach your word through the eyes of faith today to believe what you have said and to let it form in us the good fruit that you have intended it to create. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of uh, the second letter from Peter the Apostle, Peter had this to say about the Apostle Paul's ministry. He said, uh, Count the patience of our Lord of salvation, just as our beloved Brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them, that's in Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. And I think we can all say, yes and amen. I think that this is the sort of thing that Peter was talking about. Uh, Last week we, we, we opened Romans chapter 9, a controversial part of God's word, even amongst Christians. And to be clear... Um, there are faithful, Bible, um, Bible-loving believers who read these passages and come to different conclusions um, about what is true than what you will hear today. The difference between these belief sets is not the difference between Christian and unbeliever. No, it's not even the difference between mature and immature, uh, and yet we believe that these things are taught plainly in the text and are here for God's glory and our benefit. What made it so controversial? In Romans 9, Paul lays aside for a moment the main thrust of the letter to the Romans, which we've been making our way through for eight chapters. He puts that argument down in order to, for three chapters, answer an objection to his message to the gospel of salvation by grace and through faith. And the objection was this. Does the change from the Old Testament and um, and the law to the gospel of the New Testament, does that change, does that shift mark a failing on God's part. And more specifically, the question was, what or who ultimately chooses who will come to God and who will not? What or who ultimately chooses who will come to God and who will not? And what we saw in this portion of God's word was that in the ultimate sense, the answer is God does, God chooses. God chooses who will come to him. This truth does not undermine the need for us to come to faith in the immediate sense. It doesn't undermine the need for us to tell people the good news and invite them in. You still need to place your faith in Jesus to be saved. That that hasn't changed. But in the ultimate sense, when the end of all things is surmised, when, when it all is said and done, we will see that what has happened in the course of history and in the course of our lives was God's purposes in God's promise, which is up to God's choosing. When you choose God, or when you chose God, if you're here as a believer, you did so because God had already chosen you. And you came when God called you. Romans 9 has explained this thus far, complete with case studies from the Old Testament to show that this has always been how it worked. And if you're just tuning in now and that's all very interesting to you, you can jump onto our website and listen to last week's sermon or hunt us down through the podcast stuff. Um, I think it's 
it's not an exaggeration to say that that answer is explosive. Explosive. Not just now, but always. We have experienced that moment here now in light of what we've heard in God's Word that so many have experienced before us. Just in speaking with, with a lot of you over the last week, some of you have expressed to me how helpful you found that sermon. Um, it's encouraging, it's worship-inspiring, it's confidence-building, and at the same time, some of you have shared with me how much you don't like these ideas um, and that hearing them is difficult and even makes you feel a little bit frightened of God. Same message, that spectrum of reactions. This stuff provokes a strong reaction. And so I hope that it is comforting to learn that this passage that we are about to read predicts, preempts, and answers the most common objections to what has been said and addresses them directly. Isn't that useful? The objections that he anticipates speaking to people in the first century about these themes are the same ones that we typically raise today. They have all the same questions that we have. The bad news is, when I say he answers them directly, I didn't say he answers them gently. This portion of God's word is quite blunt. It is intentionally confrontational. So let's prepare ourselves for a wrestle, knowing what's coming. Do you remember in, in, in the Old Testament when God revealed himself to Job, even though Job was suffering, God's arrival was, was confrontational. Where were you when I made the world, Job? Eventually, Job became grateful for that message, though I could imagine there were a couple of days. This is one of those passages. Our, our passage today takes the shape of um, two objections to the message of God's sovereign choosing. Two objections are raised and answered, followed by three specific applications of what God's sovereignty creates in us. We will consider the objections, uh, and we will turn to the prophets afterwards who can serve as our application for today. Shall we get started? God is sovereign. God chooses who he saves. Objection number one. That's unfair. Isn't that, isn't that the obvious question? Doesn't that seem unfair? Romans 9.14 says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. We can feel that objection, can't we? I can. Jacob and Esau, we heard last week, both still in the womb. Innocent little babies. Before they have done anything, either good or bad, God announces that he has chosen one and not the other. How is that fair? Is, is God being unjust by playing favorites? Doesn't he have to treat everybody the same? Do you feel it? What about that person who's really nice, who I really love, who does not believe? Is it unfair that God may, may not have chosen them? Has God done wrong by them, by choosing me and, and perhaps not choosing them? These are the questions we ask. Well, before we get into the answer to that objection, we have to do a thing first. The thing is that we have to diagnose our own assumptions about how the world works and put them to the same sort of scrutiny that we would put God's word to. Whenever we encounter something in the Bible that we don't like, it is typically not that we just don't like it in a vacuum. No, when we find a part of God's word difficult or objectionable, it is usually because that part of God's word contradicts something that I hold dear. Do you know what I'm talking about? A, a, a different belief. Sometimes we don't even know what that belief is, let alone having considered it and criticized it. Sometimes we hold onto things that we have never considered. And so in a moment like this, it is worth asking, what is the basis of our objection? What is it in us that causes us to raise a hand against God at the announcement of his sovereign choosing and say, unfair, what are those beliefs? Well, let's get them out on the table. There is a central belief. One, just one, behind this objection. That is unfair, we say. And behind that is the belief that fairness requires, fairness demands that God offer salvation to everyone. That's the belief. And as I say it, I mean, maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, that seems perfectly reasonable. 
that if God were to leave someone in their sin and not rescue them, he would be acting unjustly. Well, hang on. If we stare at that belief for long enough, surely we start to realize that it directly contradicts the gospel of salvation by grace. Do we really, do we really believe that? This is where Paul takes us, Romans 9, 15 and 16. For he says to Moses, this is his answer, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What Paul's doing here is he's bringing our attention to the book of Exodus uh, and to two places. Um, The first place, which, which we just read, is Mount Sinai. The Hebrews have left Egypt and are now making their way to the promised land. And at at Mount Sinai, the law was given. And there, Moses asks God if he can see his face. And God says to Moses, no one sees me and lives, but I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and then pass by you and proclaim um, proclaim to you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And that, this is what he says, I'll I'll proclaim to you my, my name, the Lord, and that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. So Paul concludes from this, as should we, that when God saves someone, it is a matter of mercy and of compassion and not of deserving. Not of deserving. Our objection to this shows us more about ourselves than it does about God. I would put it to you that even though we claim to believe in salvation by grace, we find in ourselves one last little bastion here. One last little holdout. One little part of ourselves that somehow still believes. One little little dark corner of our belief system which clings to the idea of a merit-based salvation, that God saves those who deserve it. He saved me because I matter. I chose him because I'm good. That person who I love really does deserve salvation. That's the secret belief. And if that person deserves salvation, who is God to not give it? Not so, says the Lord to Moses and to us through the gospel of Jesus. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Salvation is about mercy, not about deserving. Surely we all believe this. You don't deserve it and neither do they. If God had saved no one, ever, if hell was full and heaven empty, who could point a finger at God and say, unjust? No one. No one. But God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion and that should have the effect of humbling us. Think about this, Christian. Your salvation is all of grace right down to the gift of faith that was given to you so that you might call on his name and be saved you have contributed nothing. Not one whit, not one moment to God's kindness towards you in salvation. It is all from him. It all came from him and it all came to undeserving you. You have been lifted up higher than you deserve to be. That God would deign to include you in his family is scandalous and miraculous. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will have compassion on whom he would have compassion and anything in us which objects to that is an appeal to works, is an appeal to deserving and does not square with the gospel of grace. This truth should give you hope that God really can and does 
love you, despite what you deserve. And it should give you hope that it is not too late for those who are lost. We do not know whom he will rescue, but one thing is certain, that until a person dies, it is never too late. No one is beyond the reach of undeserved mercy. It's like a punch, doesn't it? I'm afraid we're just getting started. Because the next few verses intensify this. Verses 17 and 18. But the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's stronger, isn't it? Here we have another illustration from the life of Moses. This time as he confronts Pharaoh. In this, in this scene, Moses is speaking on behalf of the Hebrews. And, and Pharaoh is standing there on behalf of Egypt. One of these men is speaking and acting on behalf of the God who made all things, Yahweh, and the other is representing the Egyptian gods. And yet also we have simply two men, two human individuals, actually much like the examples we considered last week. You could say that these two men are brothers. Just like Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael, Moses was raised in the household of an older Pharaoh having been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. It is not certain, but it is likely that Moses and Pharaoh were raised as brothers. And now they stand in opposition to one another, engaged in the age-long conflict between God and sin. One of these men is a child of promise, and the other stands there as an enemy of God's promise. And God speaks over Pharaoh and tells Moses, I raised Pharaoh up so that my name will be glorified and his defeat. means that God is claiming that the passage of nations in the course of history is conforming to the pattern of his will, which is a theme that will be huge in the rest of the Bible. And then comes the strong statement, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. We've considered that. But now we get the other side of that coin, God will harden whom he will harden. The faith of the children of promise has come by God's mercy and the judgment of Pharaoh has come by God's hardening. It's heavy, isn't it? Just, just, just let that one sink in. Our God, the God of the Bible, claims authority over both of these outcomes. And even though we all know that each and every one of us deserves Pharaoh's treatment, if we're talking about merit, that's where we all go. Isn't there just that little part of us that just rebels against this idea still? As we consider it, doesn't another objection come very quickly to our minds? If, if, if God's sovereignty is so central, so unopposed, so important in both the salvation of the children of promise and the hardening of the condemned, if God chooses whom he saves and harden whom he hardens, then why on earth, we ask, why on earth does he blame us for the outcome? You're not the first to ask it. This is the second objection. Why does God hold us responsible? Romans 9, 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? makes sense, doesn't it? We feel that. If salvation depends on God showing mercy and damnation is the result of God's hardening, doesn't that mess with free will? And if we don't have free will, how is God just in blaming us for the outcome? You're not the first to ask it. I mean, doesn't... (laughs) Doesn't that change everything? The short answer is, yes, it does mess with free will. It does. Actually, I skimmed over it just before, but we just read verse 16, which says it directly. So then, it depends not on human will. 
but on God who has mercy. That is true, says that voice of doubt. Doesn't that just make us puppets? And if we're puppets, how could a just God hold us accountable? Do you get the question? Do you feel, do you feel the objection if it hadn't occurred to you already? I get asked this question all the time. It's a really normal one to ask. And if you are asking that now, no, you are not the first. God knew you would ask, and he addresses it head on. Before we get to that answer, we have to do a thing. We have to diagnose our own assumptions about how the world works. Because whenever we encounter something in God's word that we don't like, it's usually that it contradicts something we hold dear. In this instance, what is it that we hold dear? It's a certain set of assumptions about how the will works. Culturally, we hold very strongly to an untested belief in the freedom of the will. We don't just believe it, we hold it very dear. It is our most precious belief. This is why I think this part of the Bible is, is more offensive than all the other hotspots going on in culture at the moment. This is our most precious belief, that ultimately we view ourselves as free, like God is free. Not only do we almost universally hold that belief, but we also have a second belief, which is that the only other option than the freedom of the will is the absence of a will. We can comprehend a free will. We can comprehend that we might just be automatons, but what we can't comprehend is any other possible option. And if that assumption was correct, perhaps the accusation that God loses the right to judge might have something approaching merit. But the Bible presents us with something more complex than our simple either-or. Here in Romans, which flatly contradicts the freedom of the will, specifically in regards to our inclusion into God's promise to Abraham's, uh, Abraham, uh, God's promise to Abraham. Paul draws our attention to a part of Exodus and shows us that there is simply more than the two options we assume there could be. Exodus, if you turn there, speaks uh, about the hardening of Pharaoh in an interesting way. Exodus 9 verse 12 says this, and it stacks with what we just read in Romans. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And if God saves whom he wills, has mercy on whom he has mercy, and if he hardens whom he hardens, we can see easily how that squares with Exodus 9.12. Now let's look at Exodus 8.32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, this time also, and did not let the people go. There's more than just these two examples. It jumps backwards and forwards a couple of times, which leads us to ask the question, which is it? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it Pharaoh? Or was it God? We've got a verse for both. The biblical answer is yes. These two ideas are, in reality, compatible. They are not enemies. And if we can't understand how that could be possible, it is because we are limited in our understanding, not because it isn't true. God has never lied. We have a will. We use it to make choices. God holds us to account for how we use our will. Everyone who has ever rejected God is complicit in that decision. And yet, at the same time, God's sovereignty is actually sovereign. So much so that it survives contact with our will unharmed. All of history is conforming to the pattern of his will, even though you and I make choices every day. There is more than two options 
the Bible teaches option number three, that God is sovereign and we are responsible. And that's bigger than we can comprehend. Okay, now that our flawed assumptions have been exposed as the unconsidered mess they are, let's consider how Romans 9 answers the objection. (laughs) And I have to say, this is very blunt. It's not a polite answer. At this point, God decides to go for the throat. Are you ready to be lovingly punched in the ego? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In one sense, I would say this has to be the least helpful answer in the entire Bible. Why does God blame us? The Bible's answer, shut up and don't talk back to God. (laughs) When I was reading, I I just like to picture a world where I, as a pastor, was free to talk like this all the time. It's a very different world, isn't it? <laughs> it would make my job a lot easier and make me a lot less useful to you. But in God's perfect wisdom, there is a place for this kind of tone. This is a rebuke. And he's rebuking us because there is something that we need to hear. Again, Paul paints a picture of the world, which is the most extreme possible understanding of God's sovereignty. So extreme that it's kind of hard to tell if this is real or hypothetical. Right? The, the biggest softening possible here comes from the fact that it begins with the words, what if? What if God had done it this way? I think that has the effect of, of getting those who still doubt that what he's saying is true to engage with God's right to do it this way. And yet, at the same time, I am convinced, as many are, that what follows next is a description of reality. This is what God has done. If God had made the world so that some people in it were created to be saved and other people in it were created to be condemned, could any of his creatures turn to him and justifiably complain? On what grounds do we claim the right to criticize his decision? He likens us to pottery. In an ancient house, jars were used for storage. Archaeologists are still digging them up. It seems to be about 95% of what they find when they dig, right? Some of the jars were for storing valuables. You could say for noble or exceptional purposes. They were used to store precious things. Both the jar and its contents were special. And in that same house, there were other jars formed from the same lump of clay, do you understand, whose purpose was to store cheap stuff, ordinary stuff, dirty stuff, stuff that was unclean. There were some jars made from the one lump of clay for special purposes, and there were some made for ordinary purposes. And Paul asks, what right does either piece of pottery have to complain to the potter, why have you made me like this? And then he states here, that is exactly the same amount of right that we have to complain against God's purposes. It's a know-your-place answer. Which is simultaneously true and devastating. The Christian religion is not man-centered. You are not the most important thing in the world. God is. Actually, the the ESV study Bible summarized this very well, and I just wanted to share with you what it said because I liked it. On these verses, they, they note that God created a world in which both his wrath and his mercy would be displayed. 
Indeed, his mercy shines against the backdrop of his just wrath. Just wrath. Do you understand what that means? It means it's justified. Showing thereby that the salvation of any person, any person, is due to the marvelous grace and love of God. If this is difficult to understand, it is because people mistakenly think God owes them salvation. Sobering stuff, isn't it? When Isaiah saw the Lord in a prophetic vision, his response was to fall to the ground like a dead man and to say, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what Romans 9 does in us. We stand before a holy God and there is none like him and we deserve nothing from him but wrath. That's true all the way down. There is nothing in us deserving. There is nothing in us which merits his salvation and there is nothing in anyone else. If God had saved no one, he would have done no wrong. It's humbling. If you get nothing else out of today, I would encourage you to let the Lord speak to you into your heart of hearts and to confront that part of you that would raise your fist against him and scream, how dare you? Let God cooperate with God, putting you in your place. We object to his sovereignty. How dare you? God is God, and you are not. It should surprise us that any have received grace. It should surprise us that any have received grace. Because grace is undeserved. The fact that that does not surprise us preaches to us that there is something from which we need to be rescued. Some last self-righteous claim to God's favor. Abandon it. It is not your friend. It is the beginning of all sin. That's the confrontational bit. You made it. Well done. We've just read one of the hardest passages in the Bible. And I'm sure that, like me, you have noticed it has a hard edge to it like nothing else will leave your mind and your heart reeling for a long time. In my opinion, we just read the hardest thing that God has ever said. And now, having made it through that, the rest of chapters 9 through 11 are going to start building on top of that foundation all those wonderful promises that we have been hearing about at the end of last week. What's happening here in Romans chapter 9 is that God is disassembling us before he rebuilds us. And the disassembling is necessary before the rebuilding can begin. But that rebuilding begins immediately. Because what comes next in our passage is that Paul pulls out at least three implications linked to prophecies that have come through us through the Old Testament prophets that are examples of what becomes true on the basis of God's freedom to choose. What becomes true on the basis of God's freedom to choose. The first comes to us from the prophet Hosea. God through Hosea has announced to us that because God is sovereign in saving, we are included in salvation. So far should we be from rejecting this as, as bad for us, this is the grounds of our hope. Romans 9, 25 and 26. 
as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The first fruit of God's sovereignty over salvation is our inclusion. Do you see it? Because God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Because it depends on him and not on us. Because God will show mercy to the undeserving. God has chosen to include us who were not his people into his people. God's sovereignty is our hope. Gentiles rejoice. If it was not for this, we don't get in. Do you understand what we have been rescued from? If you are here today and you are a believer or you are approaching becoming a believer, it is because God has decided to show you mercy and to lavish his love on you, even though you don't deserve it and never could. A free gift. You have received or are in the process of being invited into a salvation which is all of grace from start to finish. Once you were not his, but he has included you. Once you were not loved as you deserve to be before God, but he has loved you. By his will. You are now the sons and daughters of the living God. I hate it. I hate it when I hear people ask, how do I know if I'm chosen? Like these promises of God are designed to make us feel afraid. God has revealed this to us for precisely the opposite reason. To build assurance in us. So that we can have confidence that the God who has saved us is not going to change his mind. Because you are chosen, you are loved, you are included by his sovereign will. The first fruit of God's sovereign choosing is your inclusion in the line of promise. And so we rejoice. The next implication comes to us from the prophet Isaiah. He promises this. That the next function of God's choosing is that it creates for God a remnant. Romans 9, 27 and 28. As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand on the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. The, the second fruit of God's sovereignty is the remnant. Paul, Paul is here showing that all of the answers to the questions raised here in Romans chapter 9 have always been biblical. Have always been biblical. God, has God's word failed in the unbelief of Israel? No, it hasn't. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah even prophesied clearly that not all biological Hebrews are saved. It's in the Old Testament. But rather, a remnant. You understand? God's promise to Abraham being true is found in the fact that even so many, that even though so many of them have abandoned the Lord, he will and has and ever will preserve for himself a remnant, a, a portion of them who have believed. The line of faith never died out through is, throughout Israel's sordid history and even into ours. No matter how far they fled, no matter how many of them embraced the idolatry of the nations that they were sent to drive out, no matter the, the darkness of the sin which they embraced under Manasseh, 
God preserved for himself a remnant. Only a remnant we grieve, and yet a line of faith remains. This has remained true into our day. There has never been a day since the beginning of the world where faith and worship in God, our Creator, has failed on this earth. There has always been a line of promise. This has remained true into our days. God's sovereignty and salvation is how we know that there will always be a remnant. Right up until the end of the world. God's word has not failed, and brothers and sisters, it never will. Without God's sovereignty, we could never be sure that that would be true. You feel it? God's word would have failed already if he did not have the authority to make it so. If it was on us, there would be no remnant. But because God is sovereign, his kingdom shall know no end. The, the last promise comes to us from Isaiah again, which tells us that God's sovereignty is actually the source of our only hope. Our only hope. Romans 9.29. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If the Lord of hosts, of hosts had left us no offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Do you understand what he's saying? The third fruit of God's sovereignty is that salvation even exists. What he is saying here is that the only reason that anyone, anywhere, ever at all has come to faith in God is because God rescues us in his sovereign power and creates a remnant for himself. This is the human condition. This is what it means that we have fallen into sin and have inherited a sinful nature. There is not a human being on this planet. Nor has there ever been since Adam and Eve fell. Who given a free choice to choose between God and sin would choose God. Unless he intervenes. If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? It comes to us in the book of Genesis. Sodom and Gomorrah are two cities known for their wickedness to such an extent that to use their name today is a synonym for sin. also happens to be the place where a very flawed believer lives by the name of Lot, who is cousin to Abraham. When God announces to Abraham that he is going to judge those two cities by utterly destroying them because of their excessive wickedness, of a kind that has been rare in this world, fortunately. And Abraham begins to plead with God on behalf of these two cities and gradually bargains him down in prayer until he gets God to say that if there were just 10 righteous people living in these cities, that God would spare them. Just 10 in a city. 10 people who are faithful. 10 people who have stayed faithful to the Lord. If, if we can just find 10, Lord, would you spare them? Yes, I would. And there was not 10. There have been a few times throughout history, we read a couple of them in the book of Genesis, where the, the remnant has grown so thin that not even ten could be found. I mean, how many were on Noah's Ark is a low point. And so God leads Lot out and his family. So Lot's wife doesn't make it spectacularly. And then God destroys two whole cities with sulfur and fire from heaven. Direct quotes, whatever that means. 
And Isaiah says, if the Lord had not left us offspring, if the Lord had not left himself a remnant on this earth, if God had not chosen a portion for himself from among us, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah where no righteous person could be found. The nation of Australia left to its own devices without the sovereign grace of God. That's our destination. God's will, God's sovereign choosing is the only reason that anyone, anywhere, ever has been saved. Don't you see? In God's will, it's not only 10. It's not just 10 who have been saved and made righteous. It's not only 10,000. It is millions upon millions. It is generation after generation. It is peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation, a multitude of who have been gathered together, those who were once his enemies but now have been drawn near, called, in, uh, called into him for forgiveness and restoration and inclusion. To place our faith in the God who has loved us and to their find salvation. We have life and worship and redemption mess because of the sovereign inclusion of God. Were it not for the fact that he had left us a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah and we are not like Sodom and Gomorrah because he has left us offspring in his loving grace. He has lavished it upon us. We who were not loved have now been loved going so far as to pay the price of our inclusion in the blood of his only son. God is determined to love us, his enemies. So far, so far, so far should we be from being outraged that not all are included. We should stand in reverent and adoring wonder and marvel at what he has done that any are included. And in the profound abundance of his grace, so many, so many have been included. None of whom deserve. Most of all me. On and on we will go as we read Romans, Romans chapter 9. As God begins, having devastated our self-sufficiency, on we will go to see the majesty of the grace which he has bestowed upon us. And we will see why that word is precious. We will see the magnificence of what it means. As God's loving of us creates in us humble adoration of our willing Savior. So let's draw near to him now and pray. Father, it is so easy to relate to those objections to your grace, to your method of salvation. Because our flesh rebels against you. Because in my heart of hearts, there is a belief that I and others deserve from you all good things. downplays the significance of my sin and therefore dismisses the enormity of your grace. Father, thank you for revealing that to us today. The condition of our heart before you. Having having raised those objections and, and experienced your patient grace in addressing them, we we now stand like Job before your otherworldly glory, knowing that you are the big God whose sovereign will decides all things. 
we hear your rebuke of Job as to us. Where were you when I made the world? And we respond with him. Surely I spoke of things too great and wonderful for me. And now I repent in dust and ashes. You deserve better. Because we are fallen, you never get it. Because you are sovereign, you rescue us. We thank you, our Lord and our God, that you have bestowed on us such an undeserved kindness in our inclusion. That you have loved us who are unlovely. Lord, we cry out to you and we pray more that more and more would experience this grace. That you would include the many. I have no more right to be here than they. Father, would your, would your grace continue? Would it abound? Would it flourish? Would you not count their sins against them? stand before you in reverent awe for both your grace and your justice knowing that it is you who is Lord and not I I'm a fool to rebel against you thank you for rescuing we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and um, let's finish with this um, this song. And it's just a song of awe, um, um, a song of worship to to God's holiness and who He is. Um, yeah, embrace the tension that you might feel right now. So let's stand and worship. See? 